Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. For us, it's always about it's about expectations and it's about milestones and achieving those milestones and and we got to get from A to B. On that roadmap, there's some stops along the way. Are you hitting those stops that you said you're going to hit? Creating value can take time, but getting the right investors who've done their homework and believe can certainly speed up the process. Maybe you got delayed a little bit, throw things out of your out of your control. Well, that's okay. These things don't go in a straight line up, right? Any transformation story that's got fits and starts and then bumps in the road. So you have to be able to judge, is this just a uh, little bump in the road or is this a complete wholesale, it ain't happening situation? Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. You know, as an investor, when you're looking for value, oftentimes that means looking for companies that are underfollowed and underappreciated. Investing is also about understanding longer-term issues that the market may not understand or care about in the short term. That's really where SendFest makes its money, how they drive returns for investors. And at the same time, they help management teams improve their company, create value, and it's a real win-win across the board for everyone. These are issues that Brian Gonick grapples with every day. As co-chief investment officer at SunFest, he and his team look for stocks that may be in need of a little rehabilitation. They're always on the hunt for companies that are misunderstood and give them advice and guidance on how to position themselves for the future. But it takes patience and smarts to understand what companies really have potential. On today's episode, we'll look at how Brian and SunFest invest and advise the companies in their portfolio and how he helps them identify value every day. Let's enter the arena with Brian Gonick. I think you have like such an interesting background for what you do. Um, but before we get into that, why don't you tell everybody kind of what Senvest does? What's your philosophy? What do you guys do every day other than grind over like investment ideas? Yeah, so we, um, we're contrarian value investors when you get down to it. And um, we invest in stocks that we think are kind of beaten down or or misunderstood or underappreciated. And, and essentially, they're being priced for the status quo. And the status quo might be blah today. And we look for companies that over time and change affected by the management typically or the board, you can get the transformation so that, you know, a year or two, three down the road, 
the market sees, wow, this is this is a different company and you get a different sentiment and you get a different multiple. So this is really ultimately about multiple expansion. And that's really how we mostly get paid. What's the performance of the fund been like? So we're almost approaching our 25th year. We've compounded at 19% net to our partners to kind of put that in, in numbers you might better appreciate. If you gave us a dollar back then, today you'd have more than $70. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, back to your background, how do you think being a banker, like how does that factor into the transition to being like a professional money manager? How did that help you? Uh, you know, I kind of look at my uh, banking days and experience there as really, really learning about how to read a financial statement, how to understand numbers, how to understand how income statement, cash flow, balance sheet all work together. And then I think importantly, understanding how to raise capital. And understanding how to raise capital means you understand how investors look at uh, situations. I think one of the other skill sets of being a banker is uh, not everybody wants to take your call all the time, right? And <laughs> you have to be a salesman. And yeah. that's another skill set that I would imagine plays into what you do now because, um, you know, there are a lot of funds out there of all different sizes. They all want time with management. Like, how do you approach a management team when you're trying to get time with them? Yeah. I think that we, um, we get probably more attention for management relative to the size of, of our funds um, than most because we are not like typically looking to invest for a quarter, right? Our time horizon is going to be anywhere from uh, one to th two to three, sometimes five years. It depends. Um, and so we're viewed as good long-term holders and we do a lot of work. We're very research intensive. As I mentioned, we're kind of fundamental value investors. And so a lot of the work we do, we're asking a million questions and they can basically say, oh, I only got to talk to Sendvest to learn all the questions I'm ever going to be asked. And, and so it kind of helps them a little bit, but we also not just, um, are we asking a lot of questions? We do what we can to help our companies, right? So we're, we're constantly thinking about what uh, business development things can we do? Can we put them together with another company to talk about how they can work together? Uh, can they be customers of one another? So we're, we're trying to be value-added investors. And then we're also, um, you know, talking to them about how they're presenting themselves to, to Wall Street investors. And so we're, um, you know, I think we're value-add investors. And from your days in banking and then obviously being a professional investor for a very long time, uh, you met a lot of management teams. What, you know, A, how much work have you done before you get face-to-face -face with them? And then what, what do you look for in a man or woman that's running a company that just kind of jump, jumps out at you? Yeah. Um, so we are typically doing, uh, you know, a varying level of work before we um, meet management. Um, but to make it a real position in the fund, we have to meet management. We have to, well, these days it's typically going to be over Zoom initially. But um, so we have to talk to management. We have to um, hear from them their, the story of, of how they're going to get from A to B. And part of our skill is evaluating when we're hearing stuff we think is for real or is, you know, um, a load of crap. <laughs> so, so that BS detector, it comes in handy. And um, after, you know, pattern recognition, after doing this for many, many, many years, you can kind of tell um, when you're being sold a bill of goods or not. 
I think it's interesting because um, it takes a big ego to get to the top of a company and be a CEO, right? And once you get there, that is not a great skill set. I mean, you have to have some ego, of course, but you better surround yourself with people who are really good at what they do and go around the room, engage people's opinion because you, you can't possibly know it all. And being someone who hypes up or even exaggerates the story is just absolutely, it, it ends people's careers and they don't even know it, right? Yeah, yeah. Being um, promotional, there's passion and then there's promotion. And you have to be able to, to distinguish between the two. And and at Senvest, we like to say that, you know, look, we're investing mostly in, in small and mid cap companies. Like the market cap for us, the sweet spot might be a billion to 10 billion, say. But, you know, when you get into Fortune 500 companies, the CEOs of, of those companies, they're typically great politicians. That That's their skill. I also think uh, we have a, a saying in the PR business, which is, uh, if you're going to eat shit, don't nibble. You know, <laughs> if there's bad news, let's come out with it already, you know, rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah. But a lot of CEOs, they get to that uh, level because they are great salespeople and they can get people to follow their vision. Um, but going into a, uh, a money manager and a shareholder and kind of selling them or telling them what they want to hear is just absolutely counterproductive, right? It is. It's, you know, we're, I guess, a little cynical and skeptical, right? That's, that's just the nature of our business. So you have to be able to discern when you're being promoted, you know, being sold too much. And, and part of this is, is, is the, the questions you ask and how they answer them. And actually, I'll tell you, there's, um, I'm going to give a plug to a firm we've used. We have hired uh, for training purposes to, to learn how to ask questions of, of management. And we used a firm that um, they're former FBI and CIA interrogators. Oh and they God. coach you in how to ask questions. And when uh, the, the person you're, you're talking to is being... Um, uh, a little dishonest, I guess. Not necessarily lying. It's not like yeah. lie detection, but it's evasive. E evasive, and you can find the 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 pain points. And it's all about the phrasing of the questions. Yeah, dude, you guys are hardcore, man. I love it. <laughs> Listen, every little bit. It's I'm too nice to do that, you know. Like if someone's evasive, I'm like, oh, all right, I believe this guy. Let me ask you a question because this is not my skill set at all. So you guys do a lot of work. Let's say you take a position, you're looking out, you know, two or three years. Um, hopefully, it pans out just just like you were describing before. But like when something's going a little sideways on you, how tough? has it been for you to acquire the skill set of like when to hit the sell button? It's tough. It's tough. It's basically when you have a thesis and you're, you're expecting certain things and um, those things don't happen and maybe they're not delayed. Sometimes they could be just delayed, but you really have to figure, okay, I was invested in this idea for the following reasons. Those reasons are not panning out. Well, it's, it's, it's not working. Got to get out. And so, um, that's hard. That's hard. You know, selling at a loss is hard, but we've done it. Yeah. Do you have like a group of people sitting around a table that are just providing you with a huge reality check? Cause sometimes you can get like emotionally in involved, right? Like attached. Well, ev yeah, everyone, it's, it's hard not to be emotionally invested in your stocks. And so, I'm co-CEO with my partner, Richard Michelle, and um, we have a great team of, of senior analysts and, and it's kind of a dialogue amongst all of us. And, and our job as the, as the co-CIOs is to really uh, question and, and push them and challenge them. 
and uh, it ends up being a debate. Senvest has a great track record with their investments over a long period of time, but every fund has a true success story. I wanted to find out if Senfest has ever really hit it out of the park. Well, our biggest success story of, of all time happened this year with GameStop. And I think there was a Wall Street Journal article um, in February, which sort of highlighted that success. And, and I would point to that article and, and, you know, like all our companies, we talk to management, uh, we talk to shareholders. And so this was no different than a, than a typical Senvest position in that regard. What was, what was your investment thesis there? Combination of new management, incredible cost cutting, um, sucking out a lot of working, you know, reducing working capital, fixing the balance sheet, uh, a new console cycle, very important, and an activist shareholder who was not your typical activist. He was an operator and had had great experience competing against Amazon in e-commerce. And to your point before, just a company that was kind of, you know, quote unquote, left for dead, right? No one was paying attention. Like there's no value here, you know, and it's so funny how people's perceptions play into that stuff. You know, they hear a name and there's an immediate thing that comes into your mind like, oh, yeah, you know, this thing is a dinosaur. It's it's blockbuster video, whatever it is. Um, But there's there's a lot of there's actually more uh, nuggets out there than you would think, right? Exactly. Um, and that was one which uh, I think the perception, not, not wrongly, was that it was a melting ice cube. But there was so much change going on and um, combined with, you know, really high short interest, which means people are betting it the other way. Everyone was leaning the, on, on the ship on one side. And so it wouldn't take much in our view if that changed to um, cause a big uh, change in sentiment, which gets the stock going and then it's kind of self-fulfilling. What's your take on like what's going on right now with the with the market and everything, you know, with, it seems like everybody who has anything to sell is selling it, you know, companies are going public through IPOs or direct listings or SPACs or whatever. Is this a like a sugar high in your opinion or or how much do you guys pay attention to the macro environment or are you just kind of fundamentalist into each stock? You know, we um we're bottoms up stock pickers, but we can't ignore the um, the environment. I would say that um, when you have crazy valuations for companies that don't have revenue, things going public without revenue, cryptocurrencies trading, you know, uh, take your pick at, at crazy valuations. So these are kind of all signs of froth and, and, a, and a very um, easy market environment. And so... Um, it just kind of makes you a little cautious. It doesn't dictate entirely what we do. We're not about to say, okay, we got to sell everything and, and wait for this to calm down. Um, you just got to keep it in mind. We're kind of the same age and, you know, you, you think back on like Benjamin Graham's books and, you know, stuff sells for six times EBITDA and it's just, it doesn't even compute and you kind of walk in every day and you're like, okay, I feel like I'm in a bubble. I know it, yeah. but I'm not yeah. really behaving accordingly or maybe you are, but (laughs) yeah, you got to be cautious and listen, something always comes along to like knock it down um, a little bit. And I think the world is such a precarious place. You never know what it's going to be, right? I mean, it, it is, it is, it's, it's tough. Um, 
the Fed kind of change in their uh, perspective on inflation very recently here is sort of a big change, um, one we should take note of. That said, it takes a while for these things to correct maybe. Real interest rates are still negative. So that's still pretty bullish. What what industries, as much as you're comfortable talking about it, do you guys kind of like or do you see value in or are attracted to where you're kind of doing work? You know, it's less about the industry for us, more about the situation. Um, but that said, two of our larger positions happen to be energy stocks, oil, oil and gas stocks in Canada, believe it or not. eBay is a big position company called Tower Semiconductor, which makes semiconductors a big position. So it's a very eclectic collection of, of stocks. And, and we know that when we talk to our investors and we talk to, uh, or rather, uh, look at um, holdings of other funds, which are, are you know publicly disclosed, our portfolio just never, you just don't see anything like it compared to anyone else. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And um you know, eBay is like one of those classics. It's obviously, I don't even know what the market cap is, but it's one of those companies where it's just never in the conversation in tech, right? Like you never hear about it on the news. At least I don't. No, that's the point. I mean, it's an incredible business. Trades at like uh, 15 times earnings when you strip out some some big uh, public holdings they have. And it's going through serious transformation uh, led by a new CEO. And they're buying back a ton of stock. I think people kind of think of them as yesterday's uh, story, but it's actually quite a bit of change going on there. Yeah. They, people think about it like, oh, well, let me clean my attic out and throw yeah. it on eBay, right? Yeah. And the, the market cap is about $40 billion. Um, another, another name we like uh, called Capri Holdings, which started out as Michael Kors, but also owns um, Versace and Jimmy Choo, is what I would call priced like a value stock, but it's a growth story. And, and we're going to get this transition, we think, from growth from value to growth. It's firing on all cylinders. Um, and and the brands are, are Versace and Jimmy Choo are hot. And they're luxury brands. And luxury brands, if you look at the comps, they trade at like 25, 30 times earnings. And I've got, you know, Capri here trading at uh, 11 times earnings. What companies, and this might be a tough question, but... Um, over time, you know, interacting with a lot of different companies, like, is is there any is there any company that kind of stands out as well? Like this management team is so outstanding, like they do everything right, not only internally and operationally, but like dealing with the outside world and investors and all of that, that um, does anything come to your mind when I mention that? A company called Penny Mac Financial Services. Um, we've been invested in that company since its IPO. I don't know how many years ago it's been now. And uh, they have executed brilliantly. They're one of the largest originator and servicers of, of mortgages in the U.S. It's kind of boring, but, you know, they have just executed brilliantly and always stuck to their to their knitting. Uh, a lot of companies in the space, they got distracted with M&A and acquiring to grow. These guys just every year banging out and, and have delivered growth every um, in, in their sort of portfolio and their business every year. Um, and, um, so I would say they've done a terrific job in terms of being a value investor and looking for multiple expansion. How much do you think? And, and by the way, I, I assume you're not like a technologist or whatever, but every company is becoming a tech company. Are there ideas out there where companies just, uh, are, you know, whatever they do, they're a good business, good management team, but they just don't get the, the technology part. And if they kind of got that right 
you would see multiple expansion? Yeah, there are definitely always companies ripe for that. Whether a wholesale industry, hard to say. But yeah, definitely companies. Um, you know, we have a position uh, in in a company, for example, which is a consumer facing company. I, I can't mention it. Um, they made a great transition from physical interaction with their customers to digital. But that's only like the first step. They have to do more and, and evolve their digital offering now to be um, to, to keep the customer longer and more engaged. So it's dual, but you can't uh, anything consumer facing has to have uh, tech. Dude, I had a guy on the podcast from uh, a big billion dollar consulting firm called Convergent and um, absolutely fascinating. And he was talking about uh, visual uh, data and intelligence where anything that's captured by a camera can now be converted to data. So, you know, when you go on Amazon, they like know everything about you. They know, they know exactly where you go, what you click on or whatever. And these retailers, like a Walmart, for example, are going to be able to have cameras, which is kind of freaky, but they're going to see that you're a family and this is the aisle you go in. And this is what it's like crazy stuff. So you're almost like in the physical store, you're going to have the same data as like Amazon has on you. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. We, uh, you know, Tower Semiconductor, they're in the analog semiconductor business. They, they're a foundry. They make uh, chips for, for others. But this is one of the key um, trends that they ride because they, they make chips that convert uh, visual data to digital data. What do you think, and I know nothing about this part, but, you know, there's so many... Um, algorithms and, and, and as it relates to the buy side and investing and things like that. Like if you look out five to 10 years, how does institutional investing change um, with the advent of all this technology and algorithms and all that stuff? Obviously, you guys are like, you know, you probably utilize technology to come to to draw conclusions. But, you know, you're people sitting in the room, you're doing due diligence and you have big teams like how can you use technology or what do you think it's going to be like in, in five to 10 years? It's going to put us out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I feel that, uh, look, we, we, um, we use and analyze data uh, in ways we never did before. I would suggest it's not the be all end all for how we invest, but it helps. It's just one more thing you got to do. You know, you read the SEC filings. Well, guess what? You also got to check some data out on their websites and 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 tracking traffic and tracking credit card information. So, you have to um, do that as part of the the litany of things you you review and evaluate and in monitoring and assessing your your investment. Yeah, and then there's just going to be more data available, and it's going to be available maybe to the most wealthy people or the people with the most money, or maybe it's going to be available to everybody. And then where does your edge come from? Right. I mean, you just buy the index at that point. Yeah. Look, I think for us, the, the, the handicapping we do when we're investing, you know, you got your, you got your batting average, but you got your slugging percentage. And, um, it's, it's more about slugging percentage in my view than batting average, but it's when you, it's really, sizing your your investments that's that's the critical part um and and there's so much of what at least the way we do it in trying to assess sentiment and 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 the multiple and where the sentiment and the multiple can go it all ties into that old adage of buying when there's blood in the streets and and so um that's when there's most fear right you buy the fear and sell the greed well we've seen i mean look we've seen like these 
crazy market corrections that computers are driving and it just creates an opportunity for like a human being to buy stuff, right? How about uh, what is, you know, because of what you do, you must be just like a naturally curious person and lover of all businesses. What are some of the funkiest businesses you've ever come across or like due diligence sessions or something like that? Definitely, we are curious by nature and constantly learning new things. Um, you know, what is the, I can't even say what's the weirdest, I, they're, they're just... How about something uh, we talked about before the cricket business? I, 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 I was, I was going to say that, um, you know, I just came back from a due diligence trip visiting sawmills in Northern Ontario. Yeah. So it's so cool uh, though. It, it's incredible. It's amazing to see, um, to see how a, a factory like that works. And that was new and, and fascinating. And, um, in this case, it's an investment where they they bought ass this this company acquired assets from a, from a public company that was not it was not core to them, and so because it wasn't core, they they weren't managing it as well as it could be managed. So we've got people now that's their expertise, and they're they've done turnarounds of mills. So they show me, okay, here's what we're gonna do, and when you see it, it's a little easier, makes it a little more tangible to understand the thesis. Uh, but that's like um, an interesting one. So this was my trip. I went to see sawmills. Okay, at the end of my trip, at the beginning of my trip, I went to see uh, a company called MDA, based in Toronto, which is a, a space technology systems company. Basically, they supply antennas for satellites. They they build the Canada Arm, which is the robotic arm that was used on the space station. They have a satellite business for Earth observation that they they own. So. These are the two extremes, space and sawmills. Yeah, amazing. And then that, um, I know it's not, a, it can't be a public company. We talked about that cricket company, right? They're farming crickets. Oh, yeah, yeah, the cricket farm, the cricket farm. Yeah, that, that, we're not involved in that, but um, that, was, that was an interesting one. Yeah, my point, though, is like, you know, you just, I love stuff like that. It's just like some entrepreneurs like, yeah, I'm going to start a cricket farm and grind them into protein for like dog food. And you're like, man. <laughs> you know, poor guy, he's farming crickets and then he like takes off in a G5 or, what, <laughs> or whatever. But um, what else does the world need to know about uh, SendFest, Brian? You know, obviously you guys, I think, you know, listen, from my perspective, we, you know, when, when a company is a little bit down and out going through change, they tend to uh, close up, maybe not share a lot of information because they don't think they have anything to say. Um, that's an opportunity for you. I always tell companies, well, you don't have to promise anything in the future. Just tell them exactly what you're going through. You know, make sure you're transparent and articulate like, look, you know, we're in the first phase of a three phase thing and come meet us. You don't have to buy the stock, but just keep an eye on it. Like, what would you like to get out there about, about the, the fund and kind of what you guys are doing and, and, um, you know, that people either might miss or that, you know, CEOs, when you're trying to engage with them, you know, why, why should they hang out with you? You know, look, I think, um, I think uh, companies, even those that are going through whatever transformation they're going through, and, and if it's a turnaround, uh, sometimes these aren't turnarounds necessarily. Um, they're just, they have to make investments that maybe investors don't want them to make or that they're hard uh, decisions to be made. And, and, you know, they had expectations at one level and, and they don't meet those expectations. That kills the stock. You know, for example, one of the things we like to look at, broken IPOs, like an IPO that came out, did well, and people had a lot of expectation and then it gets crushed. There are like quite a few now. I'll give you one example. One of our holdings, a company called Switch. It's a data center company. Saw the IPO, didn't like the valuation, loved the story. 
they missed numbers a couple times, killed the stock. That's when we get involved. So, you know, I think that companies, they should be always talking to investors, you know, and it may not lead to an investment that day, but I can tell you, you know, we follow companies for years and years and years and never own the stock, but you got to kind of know the, the, the background and the story. And then, and then the timing's right, you get involved. I kind of feel like by the time the story turns, it's too late. Like, you know, you should be meeting people for 24 months in advance. And it doesn't mean you have to allocate 50% of your time to meeting with people, but just, hey, get to know us, get to know the analysts. Like, we're good guys. We're trustworthy. We're, you know, we're straightforward about where we are in our cycle and, and what we're doing. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, you know, I like these guys. I trust them. And they're being honest about where they are and, you know, they have a plan and they're sticking to the plan, right? For us, it's always about, it's about expectations and it's about milestones and achieving those milestones. And we got to get from A to B on that roadmap. There's some stops along the way. Are you hitting those stops that you said you're going to hit? What are they? Maybe, maybe you got delayed a little bit for things out of your, out of your control. Well, that's okay. If it's not in your control, these things don't go in a straight line up, right? Any transformation story that's got fits and starts and then bumps in the road. So you have to be able to judge, is this just a uh, little bump in the road or is this a complete wholesale, it ain't happening <laughs> situation? Yeah. That's, uh, but the stock, if it's going right, like the stock somehow slowly grinds higher, you know, even if you're taking a big write-off or fixing this or taking a step back yeah. to go forward, like the stock just kind of grinds higher, you know? Yeah, that's um, that shows there's some progress, and and that's sort of the um, the classic Senvis. I'm not like we're a technical analysts. Yeah, but yeah. The chart we like the chart, okay, and the chart we like is what I describe as the mountain in the tail. So it's that long hump up. Yep. It was in in favor. It falls. It's out of favor, and then it's kind of flatlining and kind of left for dead, and just sort of quietly. There's stuff going on though, and and you kind of get that maybe uh, transformation, and then the stock can come back up. Totally. Well, Brian, um, this has been a fun little podcast. Great to uh, see you and hear about what you're doing. I think it's so fascinating. And, you know, I think your background is uh, you've been doing this for such a long time. Uh, you know, like every company, every industry, I'm sure you're always learning every day. But, uh, you know, I, I I would tell any management team who's listening to this, if, if Brian Gonick uh, knocks on the door, you should definitely meet with him because uh, the management team will probably learn something and they, they'd be a great investor over time. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Brian, and uh, we'll see you down the road. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. For better or worse, the market doesn't give a lot of second chances. But value exists out there for investors willing to identify which companies deserve another shot. It's about asking the right questions, having a plan, and not getting swayed by public perception. Senvest's willingness to see the bigger picture and help restore value is what makes them one of the best investment advisors in the world. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app or leaving a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. I'd like to thank Brian Gonick of Senfest for his time and advice today. He may be a contrarian investor sometimes, but he's a great guest and a good friend. I'm your host, Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time. 
back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.